Welcome to the One Crossing Podcast. Here you can find past sermons along with other exclusive content. Our prayer is that God will move in your life even when you are on the go. We hope you enjoy this message. Well, good morning, Crossing Church. Happy Mother's Day. Wow. I think Mother's Day is pretty special. I'm looking out at 48th Street and we're pretty packed out here. I hope that's happening at all of uh, our locations right now. We want to welcome you all over this region. If you are inside, so thankful for you, praying along with you that God would just sustain you in that this uh, time of your life. And I'm also thankful for each one that's joining online and uh, looking and hoping to that day when you can come back and be in fellowship with us in person because that is truly a beautiful thing. Amen. It is. It's good. It is good to be in the house of the Lord with the people of the Lord. I hope you enjoyed the last two weeks with Mark Moore. He's something else. That guy is a great deliverer of the gospel. And uh, so thankful, so thankful for him uh, and uh, what he has uh, delivered to us and shared with us. And I'm excited uh, to share with you today because I love my church. I love your church. Uh, you know, because this is our church together. This is what God's given us, given us this fellowship of believers that's just infused with the Holy Spirit. And it's absolutely incredible, absolutely incredible. And, and I love sharing about that. I love sharing about our church. Some people say, well, you're, you know, you're, you talk a little bit too much about the cross. And I can't help it. I, say, I love you people. <laughs> I do. And I think we love each other. Yeah, we're all messed up. We, right? We're all messed up, hypocrites, goofed up, all that. Yeah, but at least we're admitting it, right? And, uh, and God's doing a great work in us and through us. And, uh, you know, he never, he never disappoints. We disappoint, but he never disappoints. And uh, thankful for all you mothers, right? Because if it wasn't for you, we wouldn't exist. It's really true. It's really true. <laughs> You know, you say, you say that, you know, to other people. If it wasn't for you, we wouldn't, you know, but that's really true with mothers. Do you have favorite movies? How many of you have favorite movies? Okay, so maybe this will date me. I don't know, but one of my favorite movies of all time is a movie called The Sandlot. How many of you have seen The Sandlot? If you haven't, come on. <laughs> there are some incredible characters in the movie The Sandlot. It's a coming-of-age movie with boys, and it's baseball, and it's incredible. And I love the characters. I love Hamilton, Ham. I love Yeah, Yeah. I, I love Squints. You remember Squints and, you know, Wendy Peppercorn? Yeah. But mostly it's a movie about Scotty Smalls. That's right. Scott Smalls, a small kid with a new stepfather who moves into a new town who never learned how to play baseball. And it's about another kid named Benny the Jet Rodriguez who's a gifted ball player. He's the leader of this group of baseball playing boys who takes Scott under his wing. And that's really the beautiful part of this movie. What do, you, what do you call a relationship like that, the one between Benny and Scott? It's a, like a friend that you look up to and you want to be like. You might call that a role model. 
I bet there's a lot of people at all of our locations right now that have had one of those, maybe more than one, a role model, right? That works for me. That's a good, a good term, a good name. In a, in a more formal relationship, you might call it a mentor. Some of you might, have, might say, yeah, I had this person, they were a mentor in my life. Or if you were in skilled labor, you, you might call it like an apprentice and master craftsman relationship. In sports, you might call it a coach or a captain to a player. But in the Bible, the word that's used to describe this relationship is disciple or discipleship. But the idea is basically the same idea, and it's to become more and more like the person you're looking up to, and they're helping you do that. See, discipleship is what being a Christian is all about. It defines your relationship with God, and it defines your relationship with each other. A disciple is a, a God follower, and a disciple is someone who's following somebody else who's trying to be more like God or what God wants them to be. They're learning how to live the way that God wants them to live, and they do that under the coaching of someone else who's already doing it. So Jesus made the, this calling of discipleship uh, for everyone who claimed to believe in him. He did not make it optional. In Matthew 28, 18 to 20, we call this the Great Commission. Jesus said this, Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and, there it is, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Discipleship is the great commission. Discipleship is also the great commandment. Do you remember the great commandment when Jesus was asked what's the greatest command and he said to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and to love your neighbor as yourself and all of the law and all the prophets are built into that statement, that, that command. Well, discipleship actually happens inside those relationships. You, you can't love a person better. You can't love God better than when you are discipling and being discipled. It's the very best way to love God and to love one another. It's the way God wants us to love him and the way God wants us to love each other. And Jesus modeled that with his disciples, didn't he? Now, there are tons of great stories in the Bible about discipleship. Like, think about this in the Old Testament. There's Moses and Joshua. There's Eli and then Samuel. There's David and then Solomon. There's Elijah and then Elisha. But it's Mother's Day weekend, right? So I want to talk about a great discipleship relationship between two women, one mother and one mother-to-be, all right? And that's Naomi and Ruth. Now, the story of Naomi and Ruth is really more than interesting. I don't want you to miss out on reading this story for yourself because I'm just going to be skipping a rock across the lake here, but uh, you just need to spend some time in this story. And if you study it, it'll even get richer and richer, all right? Because this story is tragic, it's romantic, it's dramatic, it's scandalous, it's clever, and it has a perfect ending. 
Don't you hate books or movies that have lousy endings? This has the perfect ending. I mean, it's awesome. And it's more of a short story than a story. It's only four little chapters. And it could have been a, like a bedtime story that was told by mothers to their, to their children before bed just to remind them of how good God is, especially in the long run. So what I'm going to do is I'm just going to give you the cliff notes of the story, and then we're going to go back and get into these lessons of discipleship. Now, the story begins in the midst of crisis. There's a couple, an older couple, named Elimelech and Naomi, and they live in, of all places, Bethlehem. And they have two sons, and there's this terrible famine that hits. And so they don't want to starve to death, obviously, and they hear that there's food further south and across the Jordan River in a place called Moab. Now, Moab is a place that God wanted his people to stay away from. And it's because they were known to worship these horrible idols like Chemosh and Ashtaroth. And the women of Moab actually would seduce men to follow after these idols using their sexuality. But there was food there. So Elimelech and Naomi took their two sons and they moved out of Israel into Moab. And sure enough, after they got there, those two sons came of age and married two Moabite women. And then tragedy strikes. Naomi's husband dies. And within 10 years, both of her sons die. And then she's left, leaving her and her two daughters-in-law widowed. And that's just in the first five verses. That's all I've shared with you, just the first five verses. So then Naomi hears that the famine in Israel is over. And so she decides to just give up on Moab and give up on this life that she had and return to go back to Israel. But she wants to return alone. It's, it, this has really messed her up. Maybe we should read it together. In, in Ruth chapter 1, verses 8 to 17, it says, Then Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go back, each of you, to your mother's home. May the Lord show you kindness as you have shown to your dead husbands and to me. May the Lord grant that each of you find rest in the home of another husband. Then she kissed them goodbye, and they wept aloud and said to her, We will go back with you to your people. But Naomi said, return home, my daughters. Why would you want to come with me? Am I going to have any more sons who could become your husbands? Return home, my daughters. I am too old to have another husband. Even if I thought there was still hope for me, even if I had a husband tonight and then gave birth to sons, would you wait until they grew up? Now, I know that sounds weird to you, but that's a custom. It's actually a law in the Old Testament called leveret marriage, where a younger son uh, or a younger brother uh, takes on the responsibility of his older brother's widow. Why would you wait until they grew up? Would you remain unmarried for them? No, my daughters. It is more bitter for me than for you because the Lord's hand has turned against me. 
Well, that's a pretty strong statement, right? At this, they wept aloud again. Then Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye, but Ruth clung to her. Look, said Naomi, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and her gods. Go back with her. But Ruth replied, don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there will I be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. Powerful statement. And that's my first point. Inside of this story, I want you to capture this first point along with me. And that's about discipleship. It's messy. Discipleship is a messy relationship. It's a messy experience. And if you can get with me beneath the words of this story, there are some incredible insights about discipleship. You can tell just by this conversation that Naomi has had an incredible impact on these two young women over the last 10 years. I mean, they are willing to give up family. They're willing to give up everything to follow Naomi. They want to be with her. That means that Naomi has forged a deep, deep discipleship relationship with these two young ladies, right? And literally is trying to talk them out of it. But even though they wanted to follow her, there's still a problem. Like, listen to Naomi. I mean, she's saying the Lord has turned against me. She's, she's bitter. She's angry at God. She's not being a good example. Come on. Right? Have there been times when, yeah, you call yourself a believer, those of you that are believers in Jesus, but you still haven't been a good example? How consistent are you at being a good example? When hard times hit your life, sometimes it gets pretty ugly, right? And that's the nature of discipleship. It's messy. You can see she's not being the best role model at the time because she's overwhelmed with grief. She's mad at God. You ever been mad at God? And she's bitter. Literally, she changes her name from Naomi to Mara. Now, the word Naomi in Hebrew means my sweetness. You know, you use that a lot, right, in your, in your relationships. And how many of you call one another sweetheart or sweetie or sweetie pie or sweetie something? <laughs> you know, if you were saying that in Hebrew, you'd be saying Naomi. But the word Mara means bitterness my bitterness she's in a bad season of life and discipleship is messy but listen people aren't perfect you know there are people in your life that go through tough seasons and then you might look at them and go you know you're really not being the best role model for me right now and sometimes you know you'll take the off-ramp but the fact is we're all that way we all have rough seasons of life and we have to recognize that we're all imperfect people and discipleship is messy. You need to hang together, right? Because that's real. And that's what discipleship has to be. It has to be real. 
Doing life together means that tough times are going to come, but that doesn't mean that you need to go find somebody else. And I love this about Ruth. Ruth is in full commitment mode. I mean, she's not backing up. She is not backing off. I love her words. I love her words in the King James Version. There are just some passages of Scripture that need to be Shakespearean. You know, they need to sound more like poetry. And this is one of them. I remember it being recited at my wedding. It was recited at my mother and father's wedding. This is what it sounds like. Entreat me not to leave thee, or to return from following after thee. For whether thou goest, I will go. And where thou lodgest, I will lodge. And thy people shall be my people, and thy God my God. Where thou diest, will I die, and there will I be buried. The Lord do so to me, and more also, if aught but death part me and thee. So beautiful. But beyond the beauty of the verse is the beauty of the commitment. And I want that kind of commitment to my Lord. The reason we said it at our weddings is because we wanted that kind of commitment to one another. Discipleship is messy, but the commitment of discipleship is worth it. That's my first point. My second point is this. Discipleship will move you. It will flat move you. It takes you from something to something. Now remember this. Ruth is a Moabite woman, and that means that she has a reputation in Israel, and it is not a good reputation. She goes back to Israel. She is immediately going to be labeled. She's going to wear this identity, this identity of being a Moabite. People are going to reject her. Now, Naomi, she'll be welcome, but even Naomi will have little, if anything, to survive on. And that 10-year investment of discipleship that Naomi has invested into Ruth is now going to pay off for Naomi because Ruth will do whatever it takes to help her role model. She wants to become like her in every way, and her commitment is so strong, nothing's going to stop her. I see Ruth moving. I mean, she's changing. She's changing location. She's changing family. She's changing identity, nationality, culture, religion, occupation, economics, literally everything. And isn't that what Jesus calls us to? The same thing? If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. Listen, you're going to follow Jesus. You're going to have a new identity. All the other labels that you either hate or love about yourself, you need to drop them all. Just drop them all. I mean, we've got all kinds of labels, right? Gender labels, sexual labels, uh, cultural labels, race, race labels, all sorts of labels. What if we could just be a single label and it would be this, Christ follower. Just Christ follower. Discipleship moves you. And you know, there are stages to it. There are stages to it. And mothers, fathers too, but mothers particularly, you're going to understand this on a much deeper level. When you first engage in discipleship, it's like growing up. When you first engage in it, you're the infant, 
If you're being discipled, you're an infant, you're a child, right? We're all like infants. The Bible calls us that, says that we're like babies, right? Like newborns. So let me ask you this, mothers. When you had a child and you brought the child home, what was your expectation of the child? What, were, what was their part? What did they need to do? Did you ever hold your little baby and say, now I'm expecting you? Did you ever have a heart-to-heart talk with them about that? Oh, you did, but you knew they didn't understand it, right? Because all that a little child knows, all that a baby knows is that they have needs, and they can't even communicate those needs. Isn't that right? So you have to, all of the responsibility falls on you. All of it falls on you. And mothers, you have to understand the difference between I'm hungry cry, I'm a mad cry, I'm a hurting cry, and I'm tired cry, right? You have to learn to decipher all that because all the weight of the relationship is on you, and that's discipleship. Discipleship, when a person's a new believer, new follower of Jesus Christ, that's how they are. But if you start discipling and continue to disciple, eventually they will grow into a child and they won't be an infant anymore. And they can start communicating with you and you can start understanding. Now they're still completely self-centered. Can I get an amen? And they need a lot of supervision. Can I get another amen? (laughs) But that's the way kids are. But if you continue to disciple and disciple and disciple, they'll become young adults. And you think that's better, right? (laughs) Yeah. The problems get bigger, but the victories get bigger. Actually, a young adult is where I see Ruth on this continuum or timeline of discipleship. She's like a young adult. She has incredible commitment. She knows what and who she is committed to be, and she stands up for that. The next stage of development in discipleship is to become a parent, but we'll just see that one here in a little bit, a little bit later, okay? So discipleship moves you. Discipleship's messy, but it moves you. Here's the third point. Discipleship is the doorway to the gifts of God. Don't miss this point. A lot of people want to walk through the doorway and and experience the gifts of God, but they come through discipleship. They come through relationship with God and relationship with each other. That's how we receive them. And I love this. (laughs) If you read the story, I want you to see the just so happens. See, in this new home where Ruth and Naomi go, it's where Naomi's from, they're just happens to be this practice called gleaning. Now, gleaning was a law. It was a rule. People that were landowners and raised crops, they had to leave the edges of their fields alone so people who were poor could go to the edges of the field and harvest because they could not eat unless there was some way to harvest. So there just so happens to be this practice called gleaning, and there just so happens to be a field, and that field just happens to be owned by a distant relative of Naomi's, and he just happens to be single, and he just happens to show up during harvest time, and he just happens to see Ruth, 
and he just happens to tell his workers to leave extra for her. Listen to me. In discipleship, there's no such thing as just happens. Discipleship is the doorway to the gifts of God. Now, Jim Dennis, he calls this the so that principle. So I want you to see the difference between just happens and so that, okay? They returned home so that Ruth could glean in that field, so that she would meet Boaz, so that they would fall in love, so that he would be her kinsman redeemer, so that they would get married and have a son so that Naomi would become sweet again so that that son would also have a son and that son would have another son named David the king so that he would write the 23rd Psalm and kill a giant and become a king and build a nation and he would be the one through whom God would send his son, Jesus Christ. God has a so that plan for your life. In discipleship, there is no such thing as just happens. There's no word lucky. There's no word, well, that's fortunate. It's all based in so that. You know what we call that at the crossing? We call it the upper story. That plan moves in the context of discipleship, in living out God's great commandment and great commission every single day. When we do that, we walk through that doorway of the gifts of God. Now, someone or some people need to pour into you, and then you need to pour into others. And when we do that, God will change the world, and he'll do it one at a time, because that's the way God always does it, one at a time. Finally, discipleship is the medium God uses that changes the future. It will change your future. Even though Naomi had no way of farming it, she still owned her husband's land. Elimelech owned land, and so it was Naomi's land. She just had no way of paying to have it farmed or produce a harvest. And there were laws in Israel to protect land ownership. They, the, the, the law kept land in the original family's name and under their ownership. And there was a law called the law of the kinsman redeemer that kept that happening, okay? And the way that the kin, kinsman redeemer worked is that the next person down in, in lineage uh, in, that, in that family would then take the land of their uh, closest relative. But when they took the land of their closest relative, they also took all of the responsibility. So if there was debt on the land, they had to pay it. Uh, if, if there were, if there were any, things, uh, any other things attached to it, they had to take on that responsibility. And one of those responsibilities was another law called leveret marriage, which meant whoever was the kinsman redeemer of the land would have to take Ruth as his wife. 
That way she would be provided for. Now Boaz was second in line to be kinsman redeemer. And there was a guy in front of him. Now when you did this, when you became the kinsman redeemer, you gave up a lot of your rights in order to take on the rights uh, of the older person in that family line. So Boaz is in love with Ruth, but realizes he's second in line. So he goes to the guy who's first in line and says, hey, so you are the closest descendant to Elimelech since his sons are dead and uh, you're the kinsman redeemer of this property. And the guy goes, great, cool, I want the property. But, Boaz says, if you do that, you also have to marry his wife. I could imagine Boaz would go, you have to marry his wife. Ooh. Uh. The guy was like, say what? He goes, yeah, you have to marry his wife and you have to have children in his name because you can't have them in your own anymore. And the guy said, nah, I'm not really interested in that. How about you take the land, Boaz? Do you know if you refused to be the kinsman redeemer, they took you to the city gate, you had to take off your sandal and give the sandal to the next kinsman redeemer and in that way be publicly humiliated. But the guy was willing to be publicly humiliated because he didn't want to have to marry this, uh, this Moabite woman. So Boaz redeems the field and he does it so that he could have Ruth. Listen, she was his treasure hidden in a field. He didn't care about the land. He cared about her. Remember I said that the fourth stage of discipleship is parenting? It's not long before Ruth has a baby. Can you see her in your mind? Rocking her baby. Can you see her? She's a parent now. Now she's discipling that little one with no expectations. No expectations of the little one, but just to pour her love into that little child. Can you see Naomi? Can you see Naomi holding that little grandson, feeling her sweetness returning to her? Hmm. Beautiful story. And you know what? It's a miracle that you ever got to hear it. It's a miracle that we ever get to read this story because this was written after King David became King David. You find that out in the, in the last part of Ruth chapter 4. And it's four generations. The story is being written down four generations after the actual events. And why is that important? Well, it's important because of what it says in Deuteronomy 23.3. Look at this. No Ammonite or Moabite or any of their descendants may enter the assembly of the Lord. That means go to temple. Not even in the 10th generation. Not only were you not allowed to become king if there was a Moabite in your line, you couldn't even go to the temple. So the very nature that this story exists would be a way that someone could contest whether or not David had the right to become king. And that's why I say that this story should have never been told. But there was no stopping a story like this. Some stories are just too good. 
They just have to be told. There was no stopping this story. Its love is too powerful. Its message is too redemptive. Its heroes are too unlikely. Its tragedy is so wonderfully reversed. Its joy is too complete. Its consequence too great. It just had to be told. It had to be told. Listen to me. So does yours. So does yours. You have an incredible story. And it is a story that disqualifies you. I have a story and it disqualifies me. But however we might be disqualified by the things in our past, the Lord Jesus Christ has qualified us. His blood was enough to cover all of that so we can be like the woman at the well who said, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. It changes the whole trajectory of our story. You have an incredible story that God will show you, and he will show you that story in the midst of discipleship. And listen, that's why I love my church. I love my church because it's a church packed full of those stories and those blessings. You go back to Matthew chapter 1, Luke chapter 3. There are four women in the genealogy of Jesus. Women were never, were never put in the genealogy. It was a, at the time, it was just for the men. And yet, in the genealogy of Jesus, there's four women. One of those women is Ruth, a Moabite, not even a Jew. One of those women is Rahab, also not a Jew, but a Canaanite woman in Jericho that happened to be a prostitute. One of those women is Tamar, a Jewish woman, but the reason she's in the genealogy is she had an incestuous relationship with her father-in-law, Judah. And the fourth woman is Bathsheba, the adulterous relationship that David had where he killed his best friend to try to cover up his sin. And I might even say there's a fifth woman in that genealogy, and her name is Mary. A woman that got pregnant outside of wedlock. And all of those stories contribute to the greatest story ever told. And your story is intertwined with all of those stories. And it happens in discipleship. We're moving to a time of decision. Thank you for joining us. A special thank you to those of you that choose to give to this ministry. It's because of your generosity that this ministry is possible. You can click the link in the description to give now or visit thecrossing.net forward slash podcast for more information. If you enjoy the podcast, be sure to subscribe and share with your friends, tagging One Crossing on social media. Thank you so much for listening.